0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm
1: podcast network. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to
0: create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional
1: Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome everyone and thank you so much for being on our show today. Wow, are you in for a treat? I tell you, it's just very exciting um, that we are together today. I'm talking with Brad Warner. He has written so many books. He's a powerhouse and he teaches people about hardcore zen. Brad, welcome to our show today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so delighted that you are here. And that being said, um how did your life take shape? I mean, I know with us being intentional spirits, that's always the curiosity of our listening audience is we like to know like what made you, I mean, how did you, I could, you could have focused on golf. You could have focused on being a drummer. I mean, and you could still be doing all those things, but you have become really known in the field for your work with, with sin. How did that, how did that occur?
0: Well, it's kind of a mystery to me. I, I mean, I can tell you the trajectory it took, but uh, but but why why as long it as happened?
1: They can't pick it up through the microphone. Then it be fine.
0: I don't know. Are we still on there?
1: Oh yeah. Uh huh.
0: Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I thought I got lost there.
1: No. Uh, no. no. So how
0: it happened was uh, I uh, when I was a the, I was a uh, the, punk, the, punk rock bassist for a band called Zero Defects, and I was uh, doing that and I was also a student at Kent State University and I believe I was a philosophy major at the time. I changed my major a bunch of times and I happened to take this class called Zen Buddhism, not really knowing anything about Zen Buddhism. I I didn't know what it was and what I was getting myself into. And this class uh, and, and the teacher in the class in particular just kind of turned my head around. So I started doing... the the Zazen practice, which is a particular style of meditation they do in the Zen tradition uh, every day, and kept doing it. I ended up in Japan, uh, not not to study Zen, but to get a job. I I got a job as an English teacher over there because I couldn't get any other job. And I uh, met another Zen teacher in Japan who... After I was studying with him for about seven or eight years, he asked me if I would ordain, or he seemed to really, really want me to ordain. you know it wasn't just sort of a it wasn't, wasn't exactly a request or like, "Do you want to do this?" He, he sort of felt like I, I really ought to do this. And so I did that, but I was continuously I still was working a, a normal well, I wouldn't call it a normal job, but I was working a a job with normal hours i was working for a film production company for a company that made uh, japanese monster movies you know the kind where the guys wear rubber dinosaur suits and walk around in little miniature sets of tokyo and uh, but while doing that i met this teacher this japanese then teacher and he uh, ordained me and i didn't really have any desire to teach it but uh he sort of encouraged me in that direction i was writing anyway, and I was I was in in the midst of being a, a guy working at this company, I was also an unsuccessful writer of science fiction. I was writing tons of things and sending them and mostly getting rejections. Uh, he encouraged me to write a book about my Zen experience, which I initially thought was a crazy idea, but I did it anyway because I, I kind of run out of other ideas at the moment and finished this book about my Zen experience, which was it ended up being the subtitled punk rock monster movies and the truth about reality hardcore Zen is the title and that, and it was about punk rock and monster movies and zen. and I finished this book thinking, well, you know, if I couldn't get these science fiction novels, I was writing, published this, this certainly is not going to get published, but I sent it out anyway. And uh, somebody wanted that thing. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and it, and then and then to their surprise and mine it actually became popular i i i remember talking to the editor that i had for that first book and he was saying oh yeah we'll probably go into a reprint in a year or so and they were ready to reprint the book's first printing uh within like 2 or 3 months it had sold out so um so it became popular and, and i've written Seven more books about Zen, including this latest one, Letters to a Dead Friend, about Zen. And yeah, but but I, I don't know why me. You know, I, I feel like the least likely person to end up in the position that I'm in. I, I wouldn't pick me as a Zen teacher, <laughs> probably. But uh, but there you go.
1: Well, that is the, the funny part about the path that we're on, isn't it? It's the path we think we're going to be doing and then where we... Where we wind up, for sure. I, I'm, I would have said that I wouldn't have been able to put all this together of where I would wind up either. Um, yeah. And yet it, it seems that we're kind of shape-shifted in a certain direction or we get denied one place so that we pay attention to another direction. And it is, it is pretty fascinating. I'm, I'm also very intrigued by your book title, uh, there is no God and he is always with you. Uh, what yeah. is the um, the essence of that? That's pretty just. The, yeah, the, just the title of the book would want it make people want to read it like, well, excuse me, what did he just what did he just say?
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it actually the phrase that that phrase didn't come from me, but that was the response I had when I first heard it. Uh, the guy who said it was a Zen teacher named Joshu Sasaki, and he put it in a, a book. Uh, years ago that I happened to read. And the reason I use that is because I think that is a very good way to explain the Zen attitude toward God. If you kind of go into the history of it, Buddhism grew up in India and China and Japan and Korea, and and the the sort of Christian idea of God, the sort of Judeo-Christian Islamic idea of God, never really took hold in any of these areas. So a lot of times when people would look at the the Zen Buddhist tradition or other Buddhist traditions, but then in particular, what uh, was especially this way, they would say it was a religion without a God. And as I got into it, you know, first you're kind of intrigued, like a religion without a God. That's interesting. But as I got into it, I realized it's not, it's not really a religion without a God. There is a, there is a concept that exists or, or an idea Within the Zen stream that is a, is a very very different idea of God, but it's not it would be wrong I think to call it uh, atheism, although I know some teachers including Stephen Batchelor, who I very much respect. He likes to describe Buddhism as atheism, and I think when he when he makes his case he can he does make a good case for it but but the idea of God It's so different in the Buddhist stream that it's very hard for people who've been raised in a kind of Judeo-Christian Islamic version of God to even recognize it because there's no idea of a creator. You know, there's no idea of a guy Uh, on a throne and stuff, you know.
1: Absolutely. We just finished a seven week series, um, a book by Carlton Pearson, who um, walked away in his glory days. He was Oral Roberts, protege and walked away from thousands of members and huge organizations and said, I can't teach this anymore. Um, and his, one of his books is God is not um, a Christian, a, a Jew, a Muslim, or a Hindu. And, um, and, and I think that that's part of why the work you're doing is so important. Is, is, it's, we're helping people, and the work that I do is so important. We're helping people to see that we're talking both and, Um, We're not necessarily saying there's not a creation of some type that existed, but the boxes were human made that put God in this box and said, well, no, God is this. And God's a man and he's this and he's up in the sky and he, you know, is picking and choosing and keeping your, you know, Santa Claus list and all that's going down. And that's not what any of us are really interested in. Um, we are aware that you know we have a society where a lot of people are still okay being hurted, hurted by they don't question. Well, my granddaddy did this, so that's why I do it. But there's people that are more open to no. None of us are saying that there's not a creation or a power or something um, because none of us woke up this morning and put a card in a slot and said, "Make me breathe." You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make yeah, me do this, yeah. make me do that, make me, make me, uh, he, you know, whatever. So there's something that's happening uh, for us and often in spite of ourselves. And yet it it's not that way. And if, if we look at often the greatest pain inflicted on humanity is the false religions that are made that keep people held in bondage. That's why unity is so important. That's why what you're doing is yeah. so important to say, hello, that's all really fine and good, but let's, you know, it's 2019. Let's, let's expand our awareness a little bit, a little bit more than that. Well, I think too, that it's not a surprise that you're, you know, so successful because you're, you've, you've found a different door in the way that you write, that it attracts all ages, all, all groups. And it's, um, I don't know if it, it's a fair thing to say, but it's almost like the Harry Potter movement, if you will, because there's a lot of rich teaching in there, but you're, it's, it, you know, it's a different door to get there.
0: Yeah. I never really thought about the uh, Harry Potter in context of, uh, of what I do. I I, honestly haven't read the novel, and i have only seen two of the movies. But yeah, it's, but you're right about it being a different door. And maybe that's, I I expected that my first book would never get published, because it was so unlike any Buddhist book that I'd ever read. And, you know, I don't, I don't make any claims that that's in a good way, or maybe it's in a good way. uh, But it's, but it was just not what I didn't think anybody could market that thing, <laughs> but they did, and uh,
1: and now and now it's
0: uh, and now it's become a career.
1: It's just fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And how did your so, how did your family adapt to the new you? <laughs> well, <laughs> my family's not. I don't. I don't have. I don't come from
0: a religious background, which is kind of the the weird thing. And this might have served me well in terms of what you kind of brought up about this idea of God. Is I haven't, uh, I didn't grow up with a religion. We were, we were these kind of. I, I think a lot of Americans and probably a lot of people all over the world end up like this. We were sort of nominally Christian, but that that was just sort of a cultural marker, and, and nobody really right. knew about Christianity. Exactly. It just meant we. We had a Bible in the house instead of a Quran or a Torah in the house. You know, it was just, you know, whatever. But nobody was reading it. So, um, so I think uh, you know, my family and my friends sort of accept what I do and what I am. You know, for a living, and it and it's fine. Nobody in the family has taken any great interest in it. My my dad did zazen meditation for, I don't know, six months or so before he decided to just. Give it up, and as far as I know, he's the only one in my family who even even attempted it. But um, you know, it, it's relating relating to people who don't have a um, a specific interest in these kind of spiritual things. That's kind of what I try to do in in all of my works. Is, is I try to kind of envision somebody who who wouldn't necessarily pick up a book about buddhism uh, but but who might be intrigued if they did so i tried to present a book about buddhism that will appeal to to people who who are like that who who probably could get something out of it but they're not going to they're not going to go buy the sort of books that are usually put out about buddhism
1: mhm absolutely just a whole uh a spiritual movement, that's why we always say that we aren't religious at all. We are spiritual. You know, we find common ground, mm-hmm. inclusive, not exclusive, but to find that common thread, you know, for all of us. Yeah. Um and when I, did your excuse me, go ahead. <laughs>
0: oh no, no, that's fine, that's fine.
1: Um I was also excited and intrigued about your new book that just came out letters to a dead friend about, about Zen and, um, your childhood friend had died. Um, was it a sudden death? Um, well, I, I guess, well, it was cancer.
0: So it wasn't that sudden. He knew two or maybe closer to three years before he died that, uh, that his diagnosis was they, they caught it very late and and that he he always had the, the entire time he was looking at a really bad prognosis and and it finally took him so you know there was a lot of uh waiting the, the the book is actually dedicated to two people i know one one more than the other so i'm just kind of focusing on the one person but they both two childhood friends of mine died at almost the same time and almost the same age of almost the same cause. It was kind of weird that wow. this, uh, that this happened. Yeah. But one of them I was much closer to cause you know, we'd, we'd stayed in contact better and him I visited a couple of times while after he knew that he was sick. We both lived in different towns, but I went out and, uh, and saw him and hung out at his house. And <laughs> during those visits, I hadn't, you know, he knew what I did for a living and, but, but his relationship to me wasn't based on that. You know, a lot of people I meet these days, their relationship to me is all based around me being a Zen teacher. But this, this is somebody who I knew a long time before that became part of my life. So our our relationship was more as friends. And I, I spent those, you know, I spent two different weeks with him and thinking, well, if he wants to talk about spiritual stuff i'll i'll talk about it and we'll get into it but i didn't want to be like if i'm ever dying of a terminal disease the last thing i want is for somebody to come and try to sell me their religion you know cuz that would be kind of you know really difficult to deal with uh, mm-hmm. so i didn't want to be that guy i just wanted to let him bring anything up. And, you know, and a couple of times we sort of went there. I spent a long time with him during these these uh, weeks that I visited him, but it never really got into it. And after he died, I I happened to I was on tour in Europe. I do this every year. Uh, I I have a, a, you know, a decent little sort of following in, in several countries over there. So I go once a year and run retreats and things. And I happened to be in Hamburg, Germany, when I heard he died. And I was walking around, you know, kind of a little bit shell-shocked. I knew this was coming, you know, and it, and it seemed really clear that it was going to happen soon. But, the you know, the day it happened, it still took me by surprise. And I ended up sitting in this pizza shop in Hamburg, Germany, with a little diary. And I wrote in the diary what became the first chapter of the book. The first chapter of the book is almost verbatim what was in my diary entry, which read like sort of a letter to my friend who had just passed away. And, uh, you know, kind of bringing up all this, this stuff about Zen and what it has to do, you know, what it has to offer people and and all of that and why I do it and, you know, how I wish I could have said something to him about it. And, That took a couple of years later. It it took a while to come to fruition, but I I set out a whole series of those letters, and that's what the book is—a series of letters to my deceased friend about them, (laughs) which is the you know.
1: And on the level that you're talking to your friend that that has died, your your message mm -hmm. is so um, powerful. As I've I've seen uh, parts of your book because anytime we're talking about dying, we're also teaching people how to live, aren't we?
0: Well, sure, yeah, and and you know, framing it the way I did, I I initially had this idea to do a book that would be called it has a provisional title of Zen One Hundred and One, and would talk about sort of basic Zen teachings and framing it as a series of letters to my friend made me forced me to to make it more relevant, which I think it was a great thing. Because instead of writing to a generalized audience sort of basic Zen philosophy, now I am writing to a friend and I tried to be as you know, even though it's sort of a literary device to, to write it as a series of letters, I tried to write each letter exactly as I would write it to the, the person that I was uh, contemplating when I wrote it, you know, something that I could imagine sending him to read and, you know, not be, you know, didn't be as honest and, and uh, as possible. But yeah, teaching people how to live is, is one thing. Cause we all, you know, we're all aware that one of these days we're, we're going to die and you know, Hopefully, for most of us, it'll be a reasonable you know reasonably painless experience, but it's certainly going to happen um, and and facing that is uh, that's what drew me to then because i when I was a, a teenager, my parents kind of took me aside and told me that there's this genetic disorder in our family that tends to strike people down when they're between thirty five and forty five years old and here you go, you know, at age 16 or 15 or whatever it was that I heard this, I, I kind of thought, oh, I, I got a ticking clock. Um, the movie Logan's Run was popular in those days. And I was thinking, geez, I'm just like those people in, Lo- in, in the movie Logan's Run. It's a science fiction movie where people in this futuristic society are automatic- automatically killed by the state when they reach the age of 30. You know, and I thought, oh, geez. <laughs> um that's me. And, and so I got my midlife crisis very early and that's what led me to this practice was this sort of awareness of, uh, of death as a real thing, you know, in, in my life, which a lot of people don't get until they're much older. So yeah, learning how to live has been really important to me.
1: That's really, it's really powerful. I, uh, had my great grandparents and my grandparents, um, And a young cousin drowned, so all these people had died before I was like 20. And that, I think, impacts a person, too. And then I had a very dear friend die that then would communicate with me and still does. So, you know, when something like that happens in your life, too, you do. You certainly have to expand your reality of what you thought it could look like and what it actually does look like. You know, and that there's this thin veil that's there and um, and all of those elements that it's an ongoing journey. Uh, that's for sure. I love the statement. Yeah, for sure. I love the statement. I'm sorry, I didn't mean Your website and uh, everyone. I'm talking with Brad Warner and his website is Hardcore Zen. And he's been traveling all over the world and teaching people about the benefit of life experience with with Zen. Um, I love what you were saying that you were explaining to your friend Marky how you spend your time sitting, sitting, sitting and meditating your life away. I thought that was a very interesting um, moment of of defining that. Uh, It's a, a very, very significant part of your life, isn't it?
0: well sure and 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 for somebody like uh, like Marky, the person on whom Marky was based anyway i didn 't use his real name because i didn 't think that was a I thought that was better to just not use his real name but um, it, it uh, to somebody like him, the person i 'm actually thinking of that I, I must look weird, you know and i I think about that sometimes in terms of a, a lot of the people that I knew before I got into this. you know I got into this stuff when I was about eighteen or nineteen. But I didn't talk about it. You know, I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't running around wearing, you know, Birkenstocks and saying, look, I'm into Zen. I, I kind of, I kind of just, not that there's anything wrong with Birkenstocks, but, you know, I wasn't one of the stereotypical I people. I
1: know, I know, the stereotype. And,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and so, and so I, you know, a lot of people didn't really know about it until the book came out in 2004, by which time I'd been into this stuff for decades. And, uh, so it was a bit of a coming out, but I, you know, when I said sitting, meditating my life away, I'm just thinking, you know, to, to other, to those people, I must look like a kook, you know, like, why would you do that? Why would you spend so much time doing this, this, this weird practice? But I, I wanted to explain it to, to people like that. There's all kinds of people I know in my life who I, I think are probably the sort of people who could benefit from this sort of practice, but they would never, they would never come across it uh, because it just looks, you know, it just looks kind of weird. And, and I wanted to kind of say, yeah, it does look kind of weird, but there is, there is something to this uh, that can even be beneficial to people who think it looks kind of weird.
1: People prejudge it.
0: Oh yeah, I mean you. You know you. When, whenever I look, I, I kind of collect these things, and, and people send them to me online now. Of, of the way pop culture depe- depicts people who meditate, and it's you know there's a lot of fantasy about it, and there's a lot of kind of funny ideas around it, and what most people don't like to hear is that when you first start doing the practice of zazen the, the initial experience of it is going to be just absolute boredom you know there's, there's nothing exciting about it uh, but that is actually a big part of the practice is is sitting and literally doing nothing and uh, and trying to uh, see what that's all about and And trying to come to terms with that because that can be amazingly powerful if you can just sit and do nothing uh and, and you know, you're not trying to have an experience you're not trying to you know move to another dimension I, I met a guy at a bus stop the other day and he had ha- we started up a conversation he's asking me what i do for a living and i told him i teach meditation he's like oh do you go to other dimensions i'm like no i don't really
1: usually <laughs>
0: usually just sit there you know
1: Like well, we're in Why one right now that? everyone take time and look at the website brad warner hardcore zen Uh, Thank you for tuning in and being with us today. Really appreciate it. Join me anytime at templehaze.com or firstunity.org. We'll be right back.
0: Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit with
1: Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for being part of Intentional Spirit. You know, that's just how it's about everything and how you are intentional with moving forward in your life. And um, we bring in guests such as Brad Warner today that offer tools and ideas and guidelines that can support you on your journey. And many of us have been well aware and into the practice of Buddhism, Zen, meditation, Uh, for unity. It's one of our core threads since the late 1800s. It's been a key part of why we practice and the uh, necessary reasons and the benefits that we have in practicing. Um, Brad, before we went to break, we we were talking about that often, you know, when, when we use the word meditation, people think that I can't imagine doing nothing or other people Mm -hmm. think, well, I don't like those visual things, you know, those guided imagery kind of things. It's just too busy for me or whatever. But, you know, I think that a a key thing is that um, silence and quiet, it really uh, heals and enhances the teacher archetype of being able to be in the flow of life more, not needing to be in control. And that uh, I work with my little girl about that all the time when she's getting all wrapped up about something is to just take a moment, mm-hmm. take a breath, take a moment, take a breath. And often as adults, we think of certain practices as, well, I don't know how anybody could just, do nothing but the doing nothing is doing something and it saves hours sometimes in a week of drama that would have never happened attachment that would have caused pain that didn't need to be there all of those kind of things I think that that's often people think about what they're going to give up rather Mm -hmm. than perhaps focusing on the things you gain.
0: Oh it's so true. I mean there there's so many benefits. It's kind of funny in the zen stream because one of the one of my teachers teachers had this famous line zen is good for nothing. And and that's sort of an attitude that you find in the zen stream. And the attitude is is helpful in the sense that it it kind of keeps people from expecting too much of the the practice. But the the fact is I wouldn't have been doing it for over 35 years now if i didn't have some sort of benefit to it and and you're right you you initially if somebody says meditate for half an hour or an hour a day you're going ah you know i'm going to give up an hour of my day but it's it actually does make such a tremendous difference in the rest of your day that it it doesn't it doesn't feel like any sort of a, a waste of time I mean, initially, well, I started when I was, a, you know, in my late teens and I was a university student. So, you know, everything feels like, I don't know, you know, it's it's in high speed, you know, when you're that age and and sitting still for 20 or 30 minutes is really difficult. But I, I just noticed such a huge difference between days when I did it and days when I didn't do it. Uh, to to the point where I just said, well, I'm just going to do this every day because uh, my days are are much much better. And, and it doesn't mean that every day is a, a fantastic wonderland of 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 beautifulness, but it it does mean that it's much better than the days when I when I don't. And that was the the thing that that kept me going for uh, for so long. It's one of the one of the most important things I think about. Zen practice is doing it daily and doing it even when you don't feel like it. This is this is one of the things that that happens to people. They they sort of expect something to happen, and when something isn't happening, they go, "Oh well, this isn't. You know, I shouldn't. Why am I doing this? Nothing's happening." But the 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 fact that nothing is happening is actually one of the great benefits of the practice, and and the ability to do it even when you don't feel like it is one of the most useful. Things I've ever uh, come across in the practice—it's just you know getting down to it when I don't want to.
1: <laughs> I think that's where a lot of our breakthroughs come through, is when we, on the days we say we're not, that we still go ahead and push forward. That's often the the those are often the best days that that we benefit so much because there's something new we're gonna have an insight about later on or, you know, whatever. Um, you also have in your, in your book, uh, the one of many, um, again, go to hardcorezen.com to find out all about it.
0: It's actually info. Dot .info because we couldn't get <laughs> dot .com. So. Excuse me, dot
1: .info, because um, <laughs> I'm looking right at it. But anyway, um, intuition. So this, yeah, it, it immensely supports that.
0: Oh, yeah. My my teacher, uh, Nishima Roshi, my ordaining teacher, used to talk about intuition constantly. And he said that that's what Zen was good for, was for developing an intuition. And I didn't know exactly what he meant when when I first started hearing that. You know, I I sort of imagined, I don't know what I imagined, actually, to be honest, but I, I... began to see that intuition is that kind of feeling of knowing what needs to be done at that moment. And it might not ne- necessarily be what you want to do, or it might be exactly what you want to do. My, my teacher also had this great phrase. He said, if you do enough zazen, you find that you can do exactly what you want, which I, I thought, well, that's weird because zazen seems to, the, the Zen uh, philosophy is very big on ethics you know and ethics often sound to to people like oh here's what you shouldn't do you know here's all thou you know all the thou shalt not and there is a bit of that in the in the zen philosophy too but when you when you actually practice with that it's it's usually turns out to be really good advice you know like like don't don't do these things because even though they might seem like a way that will make you happy, like something that will make you happy. Like if you steal from somebody, then you'll have their money and then you'll have more money and you'll be happier. Right. But that actually doesn't lead to happiness and never has for anybody. So, so don't do that, you know? So, so you find that you can live exactly the life you want by just following an ethical path and, and continuously sort of working on yourself, to make sure that you are are centered. Uh, my my I had a friend who there's this thing called the Bodhisattva vow where you say I vow to save all beings and that sounds impossible but my friend put it I vow to save all beings from myself. And I mm-hmm. thought that was a great way of putting it because that's why we do this work to to save all beings from the worst of ourselves and thereby you know make make the world we inhabit a better place because we're not causing quite as many problems.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I remember, you know, early on in when I was like 18 and discovered more of the new thought teachings. And I remember how threatened, uh, you know, some of my family, they were, and you're part of an occult and, what are you doing? And, you know, only Baptists go to heaven. You know, I mean, all of that stuff that never resonated with me in the first place and never will, thank heavens. But um, all that said, you know, they just couldn't wrap their head around from people that had been programmed uh, all their lives. Like, you can't ever think out of this box. It was like, well, how, if you don't believe in heaven or hell, then how can you You know, it just means you can just do anything you want and there's no, you know, nothing happens. There's no accountability and all that. And it's like, no, for us, it's immediate. It's called cause and effect. You know, it's in the moment. It's the, yeah, it's like, sure, somebody can come and steal somebody's money from somebody else. But why would you want to? Because the cost of your karma, why would you want to do that? Because you well, might yeah. get a, get by with something for a moment, but ultimately you don't get by with anything. And that's why in our practices, your practice, my practice, our group practices that all of us are a part of, we don't, it's not hard to forgive somebody else or to let something go or uh, to deal with a coworker that you feel is making more advancements than you or a colleague or, you know, an ex or whatever, because mm-hmm. it's karma. It's so easy to live this way, because it's uh, it's such a bigger picture than just the day to day in a human suit. I I find it very exciting. Certainly, been free. Yeah, it, yeah. I think it, I I used to try
0: to use the phrase enlightened selfishness, but but it didn't catch on and nobody understood it. But I I kind of feel in a way it is. You you. Mm-hmm you do this for other people and that's true and that's a nice way to put it but you also do it for yourself because you're going to feel better if you live an ethical life and and it's it's really it uh, it actually works (laughs) you know I I had my doubts about it when I first was exposed to it and and uh, and I tried it and I went oh that you do things do get better if you If you treat people kindly and if you if you do the right thing, it, it all it all works out uh, on both sides. So it's not just something you do to avoid causing harm to other people you you do it to avoid causing harm to yourself.
1: Absolutely. And that's uh, really the the inward practice is that it is, and I think to just put big exclamation points after that. The relationship you have with yourself is is really everything because yeah, it, it's, it's, it starts at the mirror, doesn't it? It starts in the conversation that one has with oneself, that they, they project that that's how their creator feels about them. That's how other people feel about them. It's just, you know, I remember years ago teaching that first thought, especially to people that came out of a traditional box that... You can't really think highly about yourself if you do. Please, you're you need to be shame based and feel guilty, but mm-hmm. the deep relationship with oneself is so necessary for um, for that balance of, of life. Because as yeah, we know, we, we can't really give hard. it away what we don't have.
0: No, that's for sure. You know, I, I, one of the analogies I, I like to use is when when you're on an airplane they the instructions they give you for those uh, little uh, oxygen masks is put if you're traveling with small children put your oxygen mask on first before assisting others and and i think that's not just good advice on airplanes it's good advice in life you know you need to work on on yourself before you can be of of any great use to anyone else and and people who try to kind of go out there and and be heroes without first sort of learning about themselves usually don't end up making things that much better. You know, you end up, you end up kind of, kind of making things worse. Uh, But, uh, but a lot of people seem to miss that, you know, when they're, when they're kind of in this, uh, especially younger people in this kind of fire to make the world a better place. You make the world a better place by, by working on yourself. That's, that's the first thing, you know, and then, then once you've done that, uh, for a while, you may be able to to uh, assist others, but uh, but don't try you know don 't be in too much of a hurry for that part
1: yeah, right would a lot of your followers be the millennials and the younger people? I would think that they would be yeah it's hard to
0: tell I mean there certainly is that uh, and, and but i i one of my favorite stories to tell about that is when I first started doing uh, this stuff. Uh, one of the first times I had a chance to talk about what I do and about my books and then uh, the, the, there were these two um, like uh, women who looked to be in their 60s who were sitting right up front and I thought, oh, they must have you know gotten into the wrong place and they're going to hate this talk. Well they were the first ones in the autograph line at the end and and they were telling me how much they loved the the book and how much it meant to them. So I feel like it it sort of it does have an appeal to younger people but it's also got an uh, what I do has an appeal to a certain kind of mindset which is often associated with young people but doesn't necessarily have much to do with age. You know, so so yeah, I I kind of um I kind of figure I'm talking to whoever uh, finds what I have to say beneficial you know and and um and I try to be kinda open uh to the possibility that that all sorts of people might find something out of it, and I'm continuously surprised,
1: yeah, well, having known uh people that are in your practice you know through through the years and because it's been so much like I said of the five principles we have it's it's four. <laughs> And it's so very significant, uh, the practice of that and the practice of shamanism and those type of things of being in nature and earth and, and grounded. It is very interesting. And I kind of picked up on the point that that you said um, we have a different relationship about age.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, who you know, I I I, I kind of
0: started with this. The fixed idea of what sort of person I was talking to, and then I had to give that up. But yeah, you, you never know. Uh, I I, w- I remember reading about this writer, Harlan Ellison, who said uh, he he'd been called an angry young man so long, and he was he was already in his sixties, and he was still being called an angry young man just because of the way he chose to write.
1: So, yeah, that's you cool. Know, it, 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 <laughs> it,
0: you know, it it just goes that way sometimes. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want to remind everybody to go to hardcorezen.info to find out more about Brad Warner and his many books. Um, Is this your eighth book or your your seventh book, you said?
0: I think think it's number eight. I'd have to go back and do a count of them, but I, I never expected this to go as as far as it did, like I said, I, my, I, I didn't even expect my first book to get published, let alone make a career out of writing books about Zen. But I, you know, I kind of take that as, you know, the universe telling me what it wants, you know, and I, and I just have to, have to obey, you know, um, it's not really the life I would have chosen for myself, but it's a good life and I, and I like what I do and I, and I, I think it, uh, it does have some value, but, um,
1: Mm-hmm. absolutely he's, he's i i love it. your writing because you a lot of things that you write you you're forced as an uh, a reader to read it twice to go what did he say <laughs> <laughs> you know what just happened um yeah. you, you talk about in your new book four noble truths
0: <laughs> yeah
1: i was somewhat curious about that <laughs> do we have well, time to address those i can try uh you know the
0: the Standard way of the uh, standard sort of title they they often give to the Buddha's very first sermon that he gave after he became the Buddha you know after he had his great experiences is, is the Four Noble Truths and and it, it was just this bad pun that I used to make them the Four Noble Truths but the <laughs> the, the standard way of phrasing them is all life is suffering the cause of suffering is desire uh, if you cut off desire you can and suffering, and there is the, the fourth one is the eightfold path for cutting off desire, and the eightfold path is actually uh, sort of surprisingly to me just a path of ethics, you know, just a, a path of, of of trying to live an ethical life, and it's it's often hard it was for me anyway, initially to see how that has anything to do with suffering you know but it but it definitely does you know by not inflicting suffering you don't uh you don't receive suffering you know and it's it's this amazing little little trade off so if you if you just stop hurting other people then they stop hurting you and you you wouldn't think that um because our our sort of materialistic view of life has it that you know that these things don't matter uh, but uh but i I think they really do and and so I was trying to kind of find a way to talk about the Four Noble Truths uh, in a way I would have talked to one of those friends who died, you know, particularly the one I visited before he died, in a way that he might be able to appreciate. And and sort of making a joke out of it initially uh, is is a way, you know, to get somebody's attention and to get into something that they might initially be really resistant to. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that's, it's the, exactly the definition of the four noble truths is it gets really complicated, but, um, uh, cause my teacher was, he didn't like the idea of, he didn't like the version that says all life is suffering. Cause he said, all life isn't suffering, <laughs> you know, some of it's pretty good, but, uh, but under that there's a kind of an undercurrent of dissatisfaction even in the best of experiences um, is, is really useful because I think a lot of us don't ever notice that, you know, but if you notice it, then you go, oh, well, I'm chasing after these experiences that I think are going to be pleasurable, but even those pleasurable experiences, as good as they might be, have still have the same undercurrent of suffering. So you're still, you're still not Uh, getting out of it, even if you, even if you have a great, exciting, you know, stimulating time for a while. So, you know, try, try another way, try a different way of, of approaching this problem of, of suffering in life.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really, really powerful. I don't, you can't imagine your life without meditation and without Hmm. the practice that you're, that you're that you're in i mean it's quite Uh, significant uh, that you've been doing this since you were 18 yeah it is hard on this path when they're 50 or they've had a diagnosis or do you know what i mean and not certainly not all i mean we have reiki masters here and energy people that have been doing it but 18 i mean that's that the that's That's a time that we're usually um I, I kept trying to drink and do it well, even though I knew better, you know, so I, yeah, I applaud yeah. you in that. That's pretty, pretty significant.
0: Yeah, a lot of people do. I don't know, I, you know, having that, you know, what I mentioned about the uh, the uh, disease that runs in the family, I think that really turned my head around. And I, I think at the time, I wasn't really aware of, of how deeply that had affected me. Um, hmm. But it really did kind of change my relationship to anything that, that people might want to do for just, you know, fun and, and laughs. You know, I'm kind of going, oh, i got to get serious. But, um, you know, I, I think everybody comes to that at a certain time. And I did, uh, at one point, I went back to writing novels, Well, I wrote a novel that um, that I ended up self-publishing. But anyway, the the main character in the novel was, and I didn't really say say this overtly, but the, it was it was how I would imagine my life to have been if I had never done the Zen practice, and sort of I projected that into a character, and he was a big old mess, <laughs> you know. I couldn't, you know, uh, I couldn't. Uh, that that guy was that guy was trouble. So I really feel like this has been incredibly beneficial. But as I said earlier, I don't like to to talk up the benefits so much because it you know, that tends to get, uh, get a lot of people, give them expectations. And, uh, and I've seen a lot of people fall off this practice when their expectations are, aren't met, you know, they, they expect something to happen. And when the thing doesn't happen, they kind of go, Oh, well, you know, nothing happened. So, so, you know, this isn't what I'm, you know, they think, oh, this is all, all a scam—the whole meditation thing—because nothing happened. But it, it really does take time to uh, to ripen, and and it's really worth the investment of time and energy. I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we find that to be true in our spiritual communities. You know, um, a lot of people come in through the years that are just wounded and want a quick fix. And often yeah. the greatest wounds require a lifelong commitment to them because they are continuing to build you through the whole process. And so, quick yeah, but, fixes yeah. don't—they're nice, uh, instant gratification. But the—the the, it's about the long term. You know that's, yeah, that's really definitely true. Really, really uh, significant and. And that's what I, I share with people, and I've seen it, you know, for the thirty years I've been doing this. The people where you really see change, um, e- either uh, discerning it or they they make you aware of it, are people that continue being into the practice, staying with it, staying with it, even when they don't want to, <laughs> even when yeah, they don't the feel like it. You know, those kind of things, and and that. A little bit here and a little bit there it leads to a lot lot it really does it's really it's really powerful i really am uh, applauding you today for the work you're doing and the the lives that you're touching and and you know we need your message out there in the in the world with those 200 and 126 people every day killing themselves in the usa alone oh, um we we have things that we can teach and offer or model in whatever way that looks like
0: yeah I think that's definitely true and and uh, there's definitely a need for it because uh, yeah it can be a great waste a great waste if people don't don't find it when they need it whatever it might be you know
1: well I I wish you much success with your with your new book and I invite our audience to You know these types of books. They also make great gifts, and that you Mm -hmm. share with friends and family members. And uh, really, uh, can't say enough about the book itself. I have it, and um, and there's so much more. So just go to hardcorezen.info, and you can Google uh, Brad Warner, and he's all over the place. So
0: yeah, (laughs) just to delve
1: into, he is a. A man of many hats, but definitely with a, a mission about about Zen. It's really been a pleasure, Brad,
0: to have yeah, you on the yeah, I really liked it's it. It's
1: been my pleasure to meet you, and who knows, our paths may find each other one day. Thank you for being on this journey and doing what you do.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation Podcast, we'll explore the Science of Manifestation,